0: Welcome to the Noble Warrior Podcast. I'm your host, C.K. Lin, former tech executive turned entrepreneur. This podcast is about purpose and what other people have already figured out. My intention is that you use these lessons and insights to have more impact, more prosperity, and more joy in life and business. And maybe one day, you'll even join our tribe. My next guest is a best-selling author and a scholar. He's an expert in the Eastern contemplative traditions and Western psychology. His latest book, The Dharma in Difficult Times, is the sequel to the best-selling book, The Great Works of Your Life. If you like what Stephen is saying at any point, go to his website, stephencope.com. And we can right. get all his books, all his courses, and his future retreats. Please welcome Stephen Cope.
1: Hey, CK, lovely to be with you.
0: Thank you so much for being here, Stephen. So um, you have spent years thinking about, talking about, writing about dharma. So it's a word that perhaps not a lot of people understand. So maybe we start there, the Mm. definition of dharma, then we can go deeper into your seminal books and ideas.
1: Yeah, no, C.K., that's a great place to start. Um, because Dharma is actually one of those many layered words in Sanskrit that you'll you'll often hear it mean truth, path, law, teaching. Um, but in the yoga tradition, and specifically in the Bhagavad Gita, about which I write, it means sacred duty or true calling. Um, dharma, the notion of Dharma is is several thousand years old. It goes all the way back to the um, the Vedic times in in India uh, 1500 BCE and particularly to a a wonderful story about uh, a myth really about the god Indra. So Indra was the great thunderbolt god back in the Vedic dispensation in India And it was said that he had cast a vast net over the entire universe from his home on Mount Miru. These gods always live on mountains, so he lives on Mount Miru. And he cast this vast net over the entire universe. And at the vertex of each warp and woof strand, there's a gem, there's a jewel. And it's that jewel's job to hold together that part of the net so that if everybody does their calling their job the whole thing is held together and all you have to do is your call is hold together your little part of the web you're not responsible for the whole thing but you are responsible for your part of it the word dharma actually is based on the sanskrit root dhr which means holding together mm. so from the very beginning in this myth, you have this beautiful idea that individual fulfillment and the common good arise together so that as I do my deepest calling of my soul, it's also got a common good. It's got a social good. It's it's pro-social behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, that idea percolated and bubbled through the whole yoga tradition until about the second or third century of the common era when it was written down in the Bhagavad Gita, the great text um, that I love and have written about quite a bit. So that's that's kind of a basic notion of dharma.
0: Yeah, I appreciate your giving us a cliff notes version of it. I, know uh, I wonder if people, see if even you know what cliff notes is still, but anyways, really <laughs> I... appreciate that, really appreciate that. So this is the noble warrior, where we do talk about purpose and Dharma quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I see people commonly experiences is is anxiety, this grasping for what's my purpose, what's my one thing, right? If I'm not doing that thing, then I have quote unquote failed in life, so to speak, they didn't, they may not say those words. But that's the source of an anxiety, right? They're grasping for the thing. And I think, Your book, your books rather, um, offer them some guiding light. So, what would you say to those people who may feel this very, maybe low grade, maybe high grade anxiety of how do I find my purpose? Oh my gosh, you know, if I don't have it, then my life is a fail.
1: Yeah, it's such a good question, CK. So, the notion of Dharma itself has tended to Promote this idea that we have one calling in this life and we have to find it and do it and the truth is that dharma is really more fluid than than that dharmas arise come to fruition and pass away dharmas change it's possible to have more than one dharma at the same time there's a, a very pernicious thing i call the romance of dharma which is that In order to find your true calling, you have to leave your job selling insurance and move to Paris and paint, right? So that's the romance of dharma. Now, that may be the case, you may have to go to Paris, but most likely, most people are already mucking around fairly near their dharma. Most of us already found our way into the right church, as if you will, Um, and, and, and we're looking for the right pew within the church, right? So it's important not to get too grandiose about this, this idea of Dharma. It's very, it's very practical and, and it's good and it's right that people should have um, some little amount of inner anxiety prodding them toward finding what their most authentic calling is. You know, Henry David Thoreau said, One should always be on the trail of one's deepest nature, because it is that that connects one to the divine. So what you see in Thoreau's teaching there is the connection between your idiosyncrasy, your particularity, and the divine, right? You you connect to the divine through your own particular nature. So maybe it's building stone walls, or maybe it's being a CEO, or whatever it is you know what it is inside. There is a spiritual connection um, in there that that you need to find. Um, And uh, it's that that connection that we're constantly on the trail of, right? I've been studying this for so many years. And right now I'm in this in-between state where I'm not 100% sure that I'm spot on on my Dharma. So mm-hmm. uh, with with all the students out there, I'm in the same state. Like mm-hmm. this process takes constant discernment, right? Mm-hmm. So what I said, you should always be on the trail of your true nature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he uses the image of the hunter, right? The hunter sits and waits, motionless with every sense awakened, waiting for, the prey, maybe that's not the best image. <laughs> yeah. he, is,
0: we we got what you're saying.
1: It's yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, yeah.
0: Presence, right? Paying attention.
1: Paying attention, discernment. Mm-hmm. Always on the trail of one's true nature. I love that. And and it's true. You know, I I'm a writer. And when I discovered that, that was my that was one of my most true callings, mm-hmm. I found out that I get what I call Dharma assignments.
0: Mm, yeah. I like that.
1: Yeah, which means that it takes a while, but a book will cook for a while in my head and, and maybe two. Now, if I removed this screen, you'd see a big bulletin board with two different books mapped out on it, right? Mm. Um, I'm not sure which one I'm going to write next. I'm not sure which one is my Dharma assignment, like which one the universe wants me to write. And it's a process of sitting with it, praying, meditating, listening, and eventually one will come to the fore. And and then once I get my dharma assignment, then my whole life becomes unified around doing that. And it's it's a lovely phase of the dharma process is when you have what I call certitude, when Mm. you know, like I will be willing to bet you know that Noble Warrior podcast is is your dharma right now
2: mm-hmm. and
1: so you can have certitude certitude allows us to unify all of our actions around what we know is our dharma mm. there's another phase of dharma which is which is murky there can be fallow periods there can be
0: a what period
1: fallow f-a-l-l-o-w that's a that's yeah, what agric- that i mean it's an agricultural term mm. uh, i grew up in the midwest and farm country and mm. um Farmers every couple of years would rotate some of their fields out of uh, production. So they mm-hmm. would fallow. And in that fallow period when nothing was happening, um, in the field, actually a lot was happening. It was cooking with bacteria and nutrients and so forth. So we can have fallow periods. We can have periods of confusion and doubt. Um, hey
0: everyone. I just want to take a quick break to ask for your support. As you know, I don't run any ads or sell anything on this podcast. The only way I can continue to bring you inspiring stories and ideas is if you help me spread the word. By rating, reviewing, and sharing this podcast, you can help even more entrepreneurs and leaders to discover, express, and amplify their purpose. You can help them have a better relationship with themselves, trust their intuition, and pursue things that bring them more aliveness in life and in business. It only takes you a few seconds to leave a review, and it means the world to me. But more importantly, it could change someone's life. So if you have a moment, please rate and review this podcast and share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for your support. Now back to the episode. Most people think the
1: the process of Dharma is just one of knowing and going mm-hmm. uh, there is that phase, but there's this other phase where uh, you're really your, your Dharma, if you will, in that phase is really searching and mm-hmm. making that a priority. So I just happen to be in that phase right now. And yeah. maybe in a month, I'll be in certitude. I hope so. Cause I actually prefer that.
0: Yeah. I, I really appreciate you you saying that, being open about that, because, I mean, you're a teacher, right? But we are all human. Um, and for me, the the dream is, to, you know, there's, you know, some, you know, the, the sky parted and here's like the thing that you should do. And then you do that thing and life would turn out just the way it's just going to, you know, walk on clouds, so to speak. Yeah. that's that's the that's the, that's the fantasy but but in reality you know i really love the way you said it there's a fallow period where you're searching you're paying attention to everything and then there's a of to area uh, period where you're just certain you're taking inspiration at all times and then to me my personal journey has been um, i don't know if you know this writer david Perald, mm-hmm. he introduced an idea of a printer method versus a pixel method
2: oh no actually um, i don't
0: know that yeah i, yeah. I really like that the, mm-hmm. the visual um, metaphors of it mm-hmm. so he, he said when you do things you know there are certain times for a printer method where each line is perfect and yeah. by the line that yeah. by the time the printer is done ta-da, you have a perfect thing yes and then there's the pixel method where it's blurry in the beginning and then eventually gets more and more clear over time yeah. and Regular. my fantasy of when I was growing up is everything yeah. should be the printer method. Right. If I'm not clear about this thing, then I just keep doing the thing. Yeah. But then in reality, for me, life is more like a pixel method. It's <laughs> kind of cloudy and not really sure. And I'm, you know, getting more and more crisp. And to your point, noble warrior has been that dharmic path for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't really sure what the whole thing is about. I just wanted yeah. to talk to really smart and motivated you know, thoughtful people and then, you know, get more and more clear. And then, and where this will go, and to be really frank, and I'll make it, make it public, I don't really know. But as long as I, I'm enjoying it and I hope yeah. my guests enjoy it and I hope my audience enjoy it, this depth of conversation, I'll continue to do this because I trust that is part of my dharmic path.
1: And trust is so much a part of it, right? There are... There are little leaps of faith involved in this process all the time um, because um, certitude is, is, is not really the common mode. There are, there are times when we have to make little, little leaps of faith. If you look at my first book on Dharma, for example,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you'll see that Robert Frost, for example, great American poet that I, I write a chapter about. Um, he knew what his calling was at 18. He knew he was called to be a poet. But it was absolutely antithetical to everything his WASP family thought. Nobody, poetry was not a, uh, a job. It wasn't a profession. So everybody kept pushing back against him. And you can see in his career how he makes little leaps toward it. They're small steps. So at one point, he decides he'll teach because teaching will allow him to to do some poetry. And then at another point, he decides a big big move, he's gonna leave teaching and buy a farm. And and actually his idea on the farm is to write poetry, not really to farm. Um, And then at a certain point he decides to go to England marking his full decision when he was 38 to become a poet. He took many little steps And each one felt like jumping off a cliff, right? When you look back, this is my experience, at those jumping off the cliff moments, it was actually just stepping off a curb. It wasn't as big as you thought it was. Mm -hmm. But you talk about trusting. And um, I love that word because uh, it's definitely involved in dharma decisions. Little little acts of faith and, Mm -hmm. and trust that move you toward the dharma.
0: So, so on that note, I'm a, let's see, how to, how should I phrase this, uh, recovering perfectionist, recovering, uh, burnout overachievers. When I talk about burnout achievers, I'm not talking about someone else. I'm talking about me. (laughs) This is my journey. So, you know, so, so, so I have really struggled with, um, following the mind, which is like logical data driven to trust, you know, where there's no data, you just have an intuition, you have an idea and you have faith that things Mm -hmm. are going to turn out. So, and I'm making it personal, but I'm using myself as as an example, but really I'm speaking to a a lot of other people who listen to this Mm -hmm. is how do you then discern, you know, how do you make that jump? Because to me, it, it sounds simple when we say this, just trust. But yeah. I, I don't know if I'm projecting, but it's like effing hard. Like yeah. that little trust, just everything's going to turn out. So can you double click on that a little bit more? How do you, how do, you do that?
1: Yeah, well, this is why I love the Eastern Contemplative Traditions. Because they discovered that there is a part of the mind that can be systematically cultivated so the first thing we encounter in the mind and what people usually refer to is, is ordinary discursive mind, the surface of the mind, what most of these traditions call puppy mind or monkey mind. It's kind of crazy. Ordinary discursive mind <clears throat> is all over the place. It's restless. It's easily distracted and so forth. Yogis and, and the contemplative traditions discovered there, there is this deeper part of the mind. And the, the nature of this deeper part of the mind is knowing. When I use the word know here, I don't mean do you know your state capitals. I mean this intuitive sense of, of knowing. It's called vijnana. Um, the mind knows with greater, vaster depth and perspective than our ordinary Western mind, what we, what we might call the ego. And almost all of contemplative practice is actually meant to connect us with that part of the mind. And that part of the mind is uh, is powerful in discernment and discerning what the truth is, how it really is, right? So um, my whole career has been spent practicing deep yoga and meditation and discovering the way in which that connects me, aligns me to this whole deeper part of the mind. And the, the experience of this deeper part of the mind, as you well know, is it's not my mind, it's the mind. Mm. It's a greater mind. It's the mm. mind of it's the mind, the mind of all beings. So mm. in, in developmental psychology, we go from this tight grasping to I, me, and mine, to opening that up to the deeper parts of the mind and you know i for years i led this institute at kripalu the our research institute and we did um some very interesting brain studies that show that that adept meditators and adept yogis um have a higher connection with something called fluid intelligence fluid intelligence is the western way to begin to talk about this mind fluid intelligence is putting things together creatively um, using all parts of the brain at the same time it's it's the the leading edge of this deep part of the mind and so when thoreau says you should always be on the trail of one's deepest nature how well precisely by getting quiet and listening and and connecting to this that's what he did at Walden. He went to Walden for two and a half years, Walden Pond, to get quiet and to meditate and to tune in, right? And he did tune in. He tuned into nature deeply, deeply, deeply. And I know you're into nature.
0: And I'm, yeah. I'm medicine specifically. i
1: medicine specifically. And Thoreau was the great genius of plants. He discovered plants that nobody had ever seen before in the West. Um, simply by his attunement to the forest and the the genius of the forest. Mm. So when we talk about trust, we must talk about, about discernment. You, you begin to t- really trust the discerning mind. And that mm. means what we in the West call intuition and hunch mm. and answers to prayers and synchronicities. You know, there are all kinds of little um uh there are all kinds of little opportunities daily where we get messages about which direction we're supposed to go and
0: do do you mind if we double click on 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 the surface mind versus the deep mind because Sure. I don't get a lot of chance to talk to someone who deeply study this mm-hmm. and who teaches it. So, yeah. and I do have conversations about this all the time, but I don't get to talk to a scholar who studies this. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, so I use my metaphor and then you can, we can double click on how do we discern yeah. this if you don't mind. No. So the way I think about the mind is the infinite expensive snow globe. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. The mind continues to create content. There's no snowflakes that you know, flares about. And what, and and there's a lot of impermanence. If I focus on a particular uh, snowflake, it disappears. A la, you know, a key principle that I learned in Vipassana. Mm-hmm. And plant medicine for me shakes the snow globe a bit, so I can see the subconscious, the deeper layers more readily. And then I can choose to uh, focus specifically on a persistent snowflake that doesn't go away, even though I pay attention to it. Maybe like a childhood trauma or a thing that, Mm -hmm. you know, that just really bogged, you know, irritated me or whatever the reason, right? So that's why I really like the plant medicine work because I get to release Mm -hmm. persistent snowflakes or charges Mm -hmm. during that process. And then afterwards, um, in that stillness of basically nothingness of the mind, then intuition or truth, or knowing, uh, comes through. So for me, it's a practice of me discerning truth and illusions that I have. Mm -hmm. That's why I like that particular process. So I want to double click in uh, um, with you about how do you discern uh, the surface mind, the chatters, the monkey chatters, and versus the deep knowing um, of the two states.
1: So Luckily, the the great Eastern traditions have laid this all out with a great deal of detail. So, mm. ordinary discursive mind is colored by three things:
2: mm-hmm.
1: colored by grasping, aversion, mm-hmm. and delusion. You're a vipassana practitioner, so you know this. So, um, there are, there are a number of ways we can tell when we're working from ordinary discursive mind, because it's colored by by greed, hatred, or delusion um and when the mind let's let's take grasping for example um grasping so let's say you and i are sitting here and we're both thinking oh i have to impress the world with this <laughs> this has got to be
0: maybe this, maybe yeah. this podcast is
2: a full surprise right <laughs>
0: um i the, the webby award which you won before that's that's right
1: i have got to be brilliant okay mm-hmm. Now what's happened? Grasping has arisen, okay? And when grasping arises, we're in the thrall of the limbic system of the paleomammalian brain, right? Um, And that's a very primitive part of the brain. Grasping, when it arises, actually interferes with subtle performance and connection. So um, if I let go of my grasping to have this moment with you, be anything other than what it is, if I let go of that, then we can have a really deep conversation. If I'm holding on to some preconceived notion, if I'm grasping for some preconceived notion about how it should look or be, or I'm up here in my self-consciousness, that's part of of ego, the capacity to connect with you is interfered with, right? The, The capacity for both of us to function at the, our most subtle level. I'll give you an example of this, the way in which we're talking about ordinary discourse of mind, the way in which grasping interferes with performance. You're, you're probably too young to know uh, the name Michelle Kwan. Michelle Kwan was a great um, Olympic gold mm-hmm. skater mm-hmm. back in the day. And Michelle Kwan had won, Olympic goal, I think a number of times, and she was going back to the Olympics again. And there was a lot of talk about how she was going to have to defend her title, right? She's going to have to defend her title. There was tons of pressure. So there was tons of grasping on her part. Along comes her competitors, young Sarah Hughes, who's not been tried or tested particularly in the Olympic stage. And she has this interview where she says, I'm just going to go out and have fun. Right? I'm, I, I, I have no particular anything to defend here. Now, keep in mind, there are two forms of grasping one is reaching, and the mm-hmm. other is protecting. So, mm-hmm. Michelle Kwan was protecting,
2: right? Mm-hmm.
1: Grasping. Anxiety, caught up in the paleomammalian brain, the limbic system. Sarah Hughes, freedom, right? Freedom to connect with just her, her craft. And of course, who won? Sarah Hughes won because Michelle Kwan, the grasping constricts the mind. It constricts it. Um, and Sarah Hughes didn't have that. So she went out and did a brilliant performance. Nothing to pr- protect. And, and she won. Have I taken us totally off course or, or are, you, no. are you with me on this? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Continue, please.
1: Um, so um, so we know that we're in the thrall of ego and ordinary discursive mind when the mind is colored by grasping, aversion, or delusion. Because in those times, there are three characteristics that, that uh, color the mind. One is the mind is disturbed. If I'm sitting here grasping for some other moment, the mind is slightly disturbed. Secondly, the mind colored by grasping is said to be obscured. That is to say, it's not seeing things clearly. Right? Mm-hmm. When you're grasping for something, um, I'm sitting on the couch last night, and and I know that there's a pint of chocolate fudge brownie ice cream in the refrigerator, right? And all of a sudden, grasping arises like, oh. I know I, I just had dinner, but I'm starved. I'm so hungry. I really want that. Want, wanting arises. In those moments, am I making a discerning choice about that chocolate fudge brownie ice cream? Am I seeing it clearly? No. The mind is obscured when it's caught up in grasping. Um, and it's also separate. So it's disturbed, obscured, and it's separate because the illusion is if I get that chocolate fudge brownie ice cream in me, I'll be whole, I'll be better. So um, these, are, these are how you know that you're functioning from this discursive mind, ordinary mind, because the deeper parts of the mind are not colored by these things. And therefore uh, not disturbed, not obscured, and not separate. Therefore, um, calm, open, and non-suffered. Does
0: mm-hmm. that make sense? It does. Um, the visual that comes to mind is the, the, the flaring up the snowflakes versus when everything is still. Still. And yeah. then I can just discern what's really the whisper, perhaps, of yeah. the intuition, right? That, that the knowing that comes through.
1: Right. Um, and you know, I, I'm fascinated by your snowflake imagery.
0: <laughs> I made that up. So. No, it's, great.
1: it's really good. I've never thought of that before. But um, you talk about that one snowflake that's persistent, right? Mm-hmm. You can identify that. That's so interesting because in the yoga translation, that snowflake that you that's persistent to use your term, that's what we call. Um, a karma that's etched in stone. There are three Mm. kinds of karma, right? And karma simply means action Um, and the the cause and effect process of, of action. It's said that there are three different kinds of karmas, karmas that are like lines drawn in water, like lines drawn in sand, and like lines etched in stone. Mm. And all of us struggle with that one karmic bondage to something that's etched in stone. And very often that's the work of a lifetime is to to come to terms with that, to recognize that pattern and to begin to create witness consciousness around it, to begin to surround it with consciousness and awareness. I'm sure this is what you do in, in your practice with plant medicine, right?
0: Um, yeah, I mean, I am a seeker at heart. I'm always a student, sometimes a teacher, but always a student and really want to, um, through my own suffering, I was seeking a way to have more freedom in my life, more spaciousness within the mind and, and then live a more embodied life. I think the terms you use is a joyous life or activated life. I can't remember exactly the phrase, but basically a life that I love. Yeah. And, and plant medicine so far has been a very effective tool to allow me to let go of those etched
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, or charges or yeah. you know, those persistent snowflakes, whatever the metaphor that lands yeah. for our listeners here uh, to, to really let that go. So then then I can free up my internal resources to you know do things that I love. That's beautiful. I mean,
1: yes, those karmas
0: etched in stone,
1: um, what they require is that we bring awareness to them, that we touch them with awareness, that we create space around them. We all have them. And, um, uh, you know, in, in many ways, the Western traditions have been, have been perhaps better at um, helping us with with the neurotic mind, um, the Eastern contemplative traditions are more interested in what I call ordinary happiness. But as far as those those items, those karmas etched in stone, those be, this is my experience, right,
2: mm-hmm.
1: they begin to fade over time. There's something called fading in the brain, and that means that the neural pathways, let's say. I have an addiction. Okay, let's just take my. I I have issues with food. You can probably already tell because of the chocolate ice cream. (laughs) With food, Um, and the more I bring, the more I touch that with awareness. So last night I'm on the couch, right, and I'm watching TV, and and it, it arises and grasping arises, and my practice is really to turn off the TV and connect with the grasping, the craving, the clinging that's arisen. And where is it in my body and how does it feel? And it it gets tight around here and in my throat. Um, The more I can create that, the more I can hold it in a wider consciousness, it begins to disappear, it begins to soften, it begins to fade and those those neural pathways in the brain actually begin to have less charge fade mm. um so I, I think your your globe analogy is very apt
2: mm.
0: so double click on the place of knowing the place of deep mm. what do you call it deep my um
1: Viznana, yeah deep mind
0: deep mind can you describe a little bit more what that is like is it just nothingness is it you know you're free to swim in the void you know just give us more words so we can get a glimpse of that phenomenon of being the deep mind
1: well there, there are two what there are two kinds of experiences of, of that deep mind one is the experience that we have in in our in meditation right so there there are many kinds of meditation the buddha taught 19 different forms But one thing that's present in in all traditions is concentration meditation, where you you choose an object, very often the breath, you aim awareness at the object, come back again and again to the object. And the mind begins to stream into the object like a laser. Right. So Mm -hmm. the mind begins to stream like a laser. And in those moments, Yogi say the mind goes into seclusion. What does that mean? It means the mind has become so, raised, so laser sharp that thoughts do not actually arise, right? In those moments when we're really absorbed in, in a state of absorption through meditation, the thoughts that trigger feelings and that trigger karmas simply don't arise. The, the, the experience is called seclusion. So I've been practicing meditation for a long time now i went last night to the center i sat for an hour and a half within about 20 minutes i'm in a deep state of seclusion right and the experience of deep mind there is is an experience of profound quiet it's it's like being in the depths of the ocean where it's all like totally still and quiet and completely transparent um it has elements of profound bliss and rapture that arise with that, with that stillness. Um, those moments are profound moments because they actually cut the roots, the patterned roots of the afflicted states of greed, ha- greed hatred, and delusion. They cut the roots so that when you come back, and you're in your daily life, you're more connected with the discernment and the wisdom and the knowing of this deep mind. So you make better choices. So I don't, I don't, if I don't really need it or want it, I don't go up to get the chocolate ice cream. I, I leave it for Saturday night when I have some friends coming over. Um, so there are two ways of experiencing deep mind. One is in the depth of practice. And that can be yoga practice, chanting, mantra, meditation. Your practice, I'm sure, with, with um, plant medicine has the same qualities. So that's one way. The other is the effect that that practice has on you and your mind in your daily life. Mm-hmm. Um, my experiences, I tend to become more sensitive, more aware um, and these are not quantum jumps, they're very gradual over time. Now I'm 73. And I implore, I, I told you this in our pre interview, I, I, for whatever reason, hang out with a lot of people in their 40s. And um, I implore my friends to learn meditation, like, please, get yourself a spiritual practice that allows you to deeply connect with this deep mind, because it it gives you a profound and enduring sense of well being. Mm-hmm. is okay, right? We used to have this mm-hmm. brilliant Canadian. Well, he was actually an Indian Swami um, from, but he was from Canada, and he used to. His motto was, "Everything is already okay," and that's the view of a non-dual teacher, right? Everything is already okay. These consistent touching in with the deep mind gives you a pervasive sense in your life. Everything's actually okay. Mm-hmm. All okay. Um, and, and then you begin to live from that center. There's a great, um, there's a great quatrain from the data Ching that says the master sees things as they are without trying to change them. She mm-hmm. lets things go their own way and resides at the center of the circle. What's mm-hmm. the center of the circle? It's that deep mind that we're talking about. It's that mm-hmm. awake mind, that uh, you know illumined mind, whatever you want to call it. So if the more you live from there, the you know you'll make better decisions and you'll likely make decisions that lead you to authentic fulfillment.
0: Yeah. Oh man, so many points I can rabbit holes I can go down to. Which one to choose? <laughs> um. Well, I mean, let's actually segue to. Uh, your book, your new book, "Dharma in Difficult Times." I think right. that's as good as any. One of the things that I have, I've always been very driven. Mm. Maybe that's obvious. And I, thanks to books like yours, um, the great works of our life, and that I became more ikigai. I became more purposeful Mm -hmm. because now I can articulate well what is my overall through line.
2: Yeah.
0: What is my north star? What's my horizon? Right. Right. That I, I I may never get there, but I'm. That's the direction I'm gonna point my life towards. Yeah. And this year. It's been a pivotal year for me because now I found joy. Oh, You know, how yeah. do I do it with joy versus just, you know, this, this white knuckling. I got to do it. I got to do it, yeah. you know, the kind of experience. So joy. Yeah. So my mantra has been only joy, only joy. Soligria. I learned this from the Brazilian. Soligria, only joy, only joy, yeah. only joy. So that's my anchor point. Right. So Dharma in difficult times, circumstances mm-hmm. may not be so great or the subjective experience may not be so great it doesn't feel quite comfortable so during those times what creeps in even for people who are trusting and who are following their dharma is am i on the right path doubt mm. or hesitation mm. so can you double click on those times when as you mentioned earlier i think it's a little murky I don't feel comfortable. I don't have that sort what I, I've always have. How do I move forward? Continue to walk the path of my Dharma and continue to trust and continue to have joy.
1: Wow. Okay. That's a lot. I, I <laughs> I'll, I'll go back to joy. Yeah. Um, uh, Oh god, I you, I just flooded my mind and, and I lost
0: my the point of It's <laughs> um, okay. We start wherever we start. Oh, I know. We're, so good. We yeah. We're gonna right. talk about doubt. So
1: doubt is an interesting phenomenon because it's one of in Buddhism, it's one of the five hindrances. So it's it's um, sloth and tor- restlessness, sloth and torpor, grasping uh, aversion, and doubt. Those are the five hindrances. Um And, you know, I, I've studied all these great lives and in, in my books, um, each each of my books on Dharma looks at great lives. And what you discover is that all of these people who, these great people, and I don't mean by great that they were famous, I meant that they, they found their Dharma, they found their calling, and they did it full out. They all had periods of profound doubt, right? I mean, look at uh, um uh, uh mother Teresa of India right when she died they found her journals and and they were replete with her doubt does Jesus Christ even exist is, is any of this true profound doubt doubt is actually the flip side of certitude in some ways mm-hmm. um, the deeper you go into your Dharma. I think the more, the more you're going to have to struggle with doubt. Doubt is the the essence of the experience of doubt, right? And I'm in doubt right now. I I'm I'm profoundly riven by doubt. The the experience of doubt is the experience of being split. Mm-hmm. Now I'll be very personal. I'll tell you what my doubt is about because it's interesting. So, into my beautifully well ordered life right, I love order, I love order, has come this little puppy, okay? It's not my puppy, it's my best friend, Brian's puppy. And I fell in love with her. Why? Because Mm -hmm. she gives me so much joy all the time. She's just pure joy, right? Now, um, Brian can't take any care of her any longer. So he asked me to take the puppy, but the puppy, having a puppy is like having puppy mind in your in your house, right? Um, it's uh, it's in so many ways a stretch for me, and it doesn't necessarily support my writing. Um, I've discovered myself to be completely codependent with this dog. I'm constantly <laughs> worrying about her. Is she happy? Am I giving her enough? Let's get uh-huh. into it. So. Right now, I'm stuck on the horns of a dilemma. Like, do I adopt this dog who brings me so much joy that I've never had ever this level? Or what about my dharma of writing? Mm. I don't know the answer. checkmith with me in, in a month, but I'm definitely caught on the horns of a dilemma. What does it involve? It involves, um, I I like to... Try things out. So next week I'm going to have a week when she stays here with me, to see how it goes. Like try it on, right? Mm-hmm. If you're in doubt, um, pray about it. Listen to your higher power if you have one of those. Um, mm-hmm. y- your discernment. Give it time. Very often the resolution of doubt takes takes time. Wow. Um, and and also honor it because doubt. Usually arises when something new arises in consciousness, like this dog, knocking on the door, something's knocking, right? Um doubt is something new knocking that you have to work through. So Mm. let's not demonize it. It's part of the process. You have to learn to work with, you have to learn to live with it sometimes. Marion Woodman, my good friend, who was a great Jungian analyst of the last century talked about sometimes you have to hold things in what she called psychic utero. You have to hold these these two conflicting ideas in psychic utero. That is, you're going to give birth to something, right? And it's cooking away in there. So right now I'm holding this little dog and my writing career in psychic utero. And very often I I write about this in another book, um, my book called Soul Friends, Very often, if you stay connected with deep mind, a third way, what what psychoanalysts call a third way will emerge. Mm. Um, I can have both the puppy and my writing career at the same time. Third Mm. third way, right? Not an either or. Mm. Uh, So we have to learn how to use doubt very skillfully because there's a lot in it. There's a lot cooking away in there. Mm. um so holding things in psychic utero i love i love that i love marion
0: <laughs> i i appreciate well thank you for making it personal giving it a very vivid example first of all uh it could, could be a puppy it could be a business idea it could be two books it could yeah. be you know a romantic interest yeah right and then life is full of beautiful blessings and and gifts and mm. hey here you go, you know, three things, you know, which ice cream flavors you want, sure. you're like, oh, now I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have some difficulties <laughs> choosing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a real thing. And I really appreciate how you said to just sit with it, yeah. give it time, and, um, and ask, you know, the deep mind, what is it that you want? Perhaps, most likely, probably, always,
2: mm-hmm. there
0: is a third solution where you can have it all and it's up to that yourself the deep mind to discern on what that is i I would say for me my in because i'm such a purpose-driven person my Mm -hmm. default unconscious choice is pick one or the other but 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 the maturation process for me is hey but hey hold on you know you don't have to sacrifice a thing yet sit with it maybe a, a new solution a new idea
1: absolutely let it let it cook i one of my mottos in life is it never hurts to slow things down it very often doesn't help to speed things up so you sit with the not knowing you make room for the not wow i don't know right now i really don't know okay that's all right um eventually it will, it will resolve itself. That's why I like the idea of the master sees things as they are without trying to change them. She's, she stays at the center of the circle. So you come back again and again to the center of the circle.
0: So on that note, let me double click on that. <laughs> there uh, meditators, especially people who are on the spiritual path often opt for stillness meditation practice, surrendering flow. Let's just watch and see. And then, but then on the flip side of that spectrum is inspire action, mm-hmm. right? You hear a lot, especially, uh, people who are all was more the mas- masculine energetics, just mm-hmm. do, 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 mm-hmm. So, but I don't think it's one or the other, right? It's finding the harmony point between the yin and the yang. So how do you think about when is a time for stillness? Yeah. when it's time for inspire actions, you know
1: that's that was the whole purpose of the Bhagavad Gita, the this two thousand year old scripture. Until the writing of the Gita in the let's say the third or the second century BCE, spiritual life was basically a life of asceticism. It was a life of renunciation in India. It was all about quiet, right? It was all about leaving the world behind, leaving the marketplace. This great scripture was the first time you have a scripture that says you can have a deeply spiritual life in the world, right? You can have a deeply spiritual life by living your calling in the world. And in fact, most of us are not going to be monks and nuns. Most of us are living in the world. I certainly am. And so it lays out this four-stage path for living in the world fully. And, and I've this is in my first book on dharma. Number one, discernment, discern your calling. And by that, I mean, what's your calling right now? Forget about the, the notion that we just have one calling. And, but right now, what's life calling you to? Discern your dharma. Second, do it full out. This is called the doctrine of unified action. That is, once you know what it is, you bring everything to it this is where that that trust and those leaps come in you you bring it right so discern your dharma do it full out the third one is let go of the fruits right let go of the outcome the outcome is none of your business you don't even know what success or failure means krishna says to arjuna um uh, it's better to fail at your own dharma than to succeed at the dharma of another. But the truth is, we don't know what success really means. So my new book, for example, um, it's not selling as well as my, my first book on dharma. I don't know why. Um, I don't know its true purpose. I, I got the dharma assignment. It was clear I was supposed to write that book. I brought everything I had to it. I did it full out. Now I have to let, let it go. I have to let it go into the world and find its true purpose okay so this is a hard one for westerners letting go of the outcome i mean i worked with this group of of hedge fund guys and the the idea of letting go of the outcome for hedge fund managers was just crazy um and then the the fourth one is is Wait, wait,
0: wait before you go on to the next one so what do they say um were you able to help them like what did you say to help them well, like a little bit of their attachment, <laughs>
1: I, I was able to show them mm-hmm. precisely that clinging to outcome actually interferes with their performance, even in the financial world, because clinging to outcome, in, if you're clinging and grasping and holding on, we've already seen that 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 gives you tunnel vision that narrows your focus, that eliminates this great fluid intelligence where you open to all these possibilities. So they got that their creativity was enhanced by letting go of their ideas of what a good outcome would be. Mm. They totally Mm. got it. And this group went on to, some of them wanted to leave the profession, but they went on to stay in the profession. This was after the, the disaster of 2008 and reform it, right? Because that sector was so involved. In the, in the crash in 2008 and 2009. Um, so let's review. Discern your dharma. Do it full out, unified action. Let go of the fruits and then turn it over to God, to higher power, to something bigger than you, to some bigger purpose. Um, and, and the Bhagavad Gita showed that when you're living that way, according to those four precepts, you're actually not the doer of your actions. You're the channel. You're a channel for this deeper mind, for some people would call it God, the divine. Um, but you get to live this amazingly exciting and fulfilled life and um, let go of those things that really cause suffering, the clinging and the grasping and the hatred and aversion and so forth. Um mm. Does this
0: answered your question. Did it I does. Yeah. Um, actually, what you said about letting <clears throat> go um, or surrendering, you didn't say those words. I said those words, but yep. that's what I got. Right. Um, it reminded me of a high performing coach, high performance coach, Jeff Spencer. Hmm. He used to be the cornerman for Tiger Woods, Lance Armstrong, Bonnell, and this type of people. high you know people who are playing on a really high level.
1: What's
0: his name? Jeff Spencer. Okay. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Lance Armstrong. So, and he said, keep a soft focus. He said, mm-hmm. you don't want it to be hard focused because ah. if you keep it a hard focus, all you can see is the thing that you're looking at. You can't see anything else. Oh, that's beautiful. You also want to be too diffusive. Yeah. where you can't see anything. You, you lose your goal. Soft, like keep it there, but keep your peripheral vision there. Uh, I really appreciate that, that um, articulation.
1: That's beautiful, CK. Do you know that one of the side effects of of deep meditators is their perver- their peripheral vision is widened? Mm-hmm. You know, anatomically, biochemically, whatever you want to say, they have more peripheral vision. Actually, isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. I don't mean symbolic per- peripheral vision. Mm-hmm. So open it up. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's beautiful. I love the soft focus idea.
0: Yeah, because then, because when you have soft focus, then you can be aware of the solutions that were the third way that you mentioned earlier, may be staring at you in the face, but you just are too focused to even see it.
1: You know, one of one of my great fun examples of fluid intelligence that we talked about earlier that we're talking about now too is is apollo 13 mm-hmm. remember when they had a disaster on board and the group of scientists down on earth had to put together had to do all these creative solutions to try to solve the problem that was going on up there
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it required them totally thinking out of the box right and um That's characteristic of this mind that we've been talking about. So for for several years, I taught a group of brilliant young musicians from all over the world who had come together in this academy here in in Massachusetts to study every summer. And they had such a hard focus on the perfection of their instrument and the piece of music that they were suffering profoundly. The grasping to perfection and perfect outcome um, was so hard. And I taught them the story of Krishna and Arjuna and they started softening that and opening up and all of a sudden it unleashed their creativity. We'll talk about joy, right? So um, that narrow focus was just widened and they had this, this sense of everything's okay well-being and so now how do i live how do i live in my instrument through through that rather than through holding and clinging and,
0: and grasping so let's talk about that for a bit <clears throat> when people think about spiritual practice or professional practice they're thinking i got to you know really hunker down and it's about the discipline is very serious my livelihoods on the line my reputation is on the line it's a lot of heaviness and significance and yeah. i know that personally very very well <laughs> yeah. and 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 um but one realization that i have is what is it all for if not for joy so yeah. I do my best to bring in the lightness of being, right? To remember that all this is going to pass. Mm-hmm. And and it's all about enjoying my life. Mm-hmm. So I'm um, curious because you wrote a book about Dharma, Great yeah. Works of Our Life. Yeah. You wrote a book about Dharma in difficult times. So can you help us bring a little bit more joy into our Dharma work?
1: Yeah, um, you know, joy, um, as you probably know, joy is a, is a built-in feature of this deep mind that we've talked about. Um, when the mind settles, these four states of mind, and and this comes straight from the Buddha, but it's also in all the yoga scriptures. When the mind quiets and settles, four states of mind naturally arise. One is called metta, loving kindness. One is called karuna, compassion. Mudita, sympathetic joy. And upeka is, is equanimity or balance. But together, these are all states of profound happiness, right? enjoy and there's nothing that you have to do to create them it it's a byproduct of practice Mm. Uh, now it's a it's a complicated thing though isn't it because i let's take me i'm a writer and um i have a my my motto for myself as a writer is suit up and show up my Mm -hmm. agreement with myself is i have to suit up and show up every day right here in the office Mm -hmm. and if i don't feel like writing i don't have to i almost never don't feel like writing i always i get here and like we're gonna write so some days are work um some days are plotting other days are just filled with these gifts and joy and um You know, Arnold, or or Copeland, Aaron Copeland, the great American composer used to say, um, I have to show up in my studio because I never know when the muse is going to show up. And if I'm not there, I won't meet her, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, I have days that are very craftsman-like, very workman-like, plodding, right? Where I... My motto in those days is just to move the marbles forward a little bit. My best buddy Brian and I have this. He's he has is an entirely different business, <clears throat> but we at the end of the day we're like, well, did you move? Did you move the marbles forward just a little bit?
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: that was good. Um, it's a very craftsman like approach, but along with this craftsman like approach comes unbidden ways of deep happiness and joy Mm. the the idea is that in your in your dharma remember you're just doing your little bit but you're part of building something bigger you're part of building a good society you're part of building a good family you're part of building a cathedral a great cathedral and there are moments when you feel you step back and you feel the profound joy in that cathedral right maybe you won't live to see it done. But you feel the joy in your, own, in your own integrity and participation in that big task. You feel the joy in having been invited into that big task. And I don't mean big. I mean spiritually big, right? I understand. Yeah. Um, Thoreau is always my good example on that because he lived such apparently a small life. You know, he said, I have traveled extensively in Concord. Um, but he lived such a big life in, in, with such integrity to his own calling that it, it literally touched the world. And mm. there was a dude that was full of joy, but not all the time. He had a lot of sorrow as well. And sometimes I think joy and sorrow are very deeply intertwined. Mm. You know, you've had the experience when you're, you're sobbing and you're crying and your heart is broken but there's also some deep sense of sweetness in it. You know, it's, 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 that sorrow is connecting you to maybe a lost person or love or whatever. Um, so I, I have to be careful around this because people think that contemplative practice is inevitably going to lead to immediate happiness. And, 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 and permanent happiness, and that's just not true. Mm. You know? Um but Jikscentmihai, you know who you know me hey, the great mm-hmm. author of the book Flow. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He did a study of what actually makes people happy and fulfilled, and it was a big surprise to everybody. He he put beepers on people and he he did hundreds of of um, of subjects. And at the beginning of the study, he asked people when they were happiest and most fulfilled. And to a person, they said, when I'm hanging out with my family or you know, when I'm in my own personal monogram pool in the backyard or whatever. And then he beeped beat them periodically and randomly and asked them about their state of mind in that moment. And what he found was most people were really happiest when they were doing what we would call their dharma, that is, when they were doing some task or occupation to which they felt deeply called, mm. with, in which they had some skill, and, uh, and some, something that the, they could call doing their life work, um, whether it was raising an adolescent or writing books, as I do. Most people were actually happiest and most fulfilled when they're doing their dharma and joy arises unbidden again it passes away it arises and passes away happiness arises and passes away what the the mind state that's more that that stays around more is actually fulfillment which is different than happiness
0: okay double click on that what's What's the different definition for happiness and fulfillment?
1: So happiness is a is a fleeting state of mind that comes mm-hmm. and goes. And fulfillment is a deeper ardency. Like I have this profound sense of having lived a fulfilled life because I I took some risks. I I did my dharma. I wrote the books. Some of them are bestsellers, some aren't, but I I took every dharma assignment and did it. And this leads to a, a kind of happiness that is not not exactly surface, and um, but it's it's a deeper kind of happiness, a deeper abiding sense of being filled up, really, even in the midst of a day when nothing goes right, and my writing doesn't go well, and and yet there's a there's a profound sense still of fulfillment. No, I'm in the right place. I'm in the right church and I'm in the right pew and I'm doing it and letting go of the outcome. I don't know. The outcome is bigger than I am. Who knows? Maybe these Mm -hmm. are meant to stick somewhere. Maybe they're not, but I know I did my part and that leads to fulfillment. And it's, it's erroneous and it's misleading for people to think that if I don't get happy right away, Um, that I've somehow failed in my practice. Uh, It doesn't, it really doesn't work like that. Happiness is a mind state that comes and goes and it's lovely when it comes. And um, when it goes, you learn to be with that and not be aversive to it.
0: Yeah, man. Uh again, so many things I can double click on. I need to make a choice. <laughs> so for me, the metaphor, the difference between happiness and fulfillment is the gratification of eating that ice cream. It's mm-hmm. fleeting, mm-hmm. Okay, but it's very satisfying. Right. And versus eating a wholesome, healthy meal. Yeah, that's good. Right. May not have the same uh peak taste. Oral pleasures, let's say, but the body is nourished and then like you feel that. satisfied, is very, very content from that. I still want my dessert, but nonetheless, the body is very satisfied versus this like sugar high that I'm just trying to chase. So that's a very visceral uh, metaphor. I like
1: that. There is this distinction in the contemplative traditions between. As between grasping and aspiration, right? Mm. Grasping is is driven by that squirrel brain, the paleomammalian brain. It's full of suffering. It's just Mm. it is. Where did I just see last night? Um, I was watching something on Netflix, and I was surprised to see very, very adept. I guess it was musicians. Yeah, it was musicians. Talking about how much suffering they had around their grasping, right? Um, oh no! Here's another secret. I never watched this, but I was actually watching Britain Britain's Got Talent. Uh
0: huh. Uh huh.
1: That's where I saw it. It was on YouTube. Um, so there are two things: grasping, which can drive you. It can you can be a driven person, mm-hmm. driven by grasping. And many of my young musicians come in to me that way. right? And to a certain extent, it's created that grasping has created a lot of excellence and beauty, but also Mm -hmm. a lot of suffering. So Mm -hmm. I presented them this alternative called aspiration. Aspiration is more driven by the prefrontal cortex, by the executive functions of the brain. And it says, look, just practice your practice um, do what we call deliberate practice. that That's, I sketched that out in, in the book. Um, deliberately practice your craft so that you achieve a kind of mastery. And then rather relying on your own emotional state and your, your wish for greatness or your wish for perfection, rely on your craftsmanship and let it, let it shine. Or if it doesn't shine that day, it's okay, let it go, get over it. You know, I, I write about Marianne Anderson and her brilliant concert in 1936 in front of the Lincoln Memorial, where because of racism, the daughters of the American Revolution would not let Marian, the greatest contralto in the world, black, would not let her sing in Constitution Hall. And Eleanor Roosevelt and Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was president at the time, said, no way, that is, not, that is not going to stand. And so they created a concert for her in front of the Lincoln Memorial on Easter day, 1936. 75,000 people showed up, right? it was It was an earth-shattering event. She walked onto, and, and the event of her life, really, in many ways, she walked onto the stage and there are all these microphones in front of her from all over the world. This was broadcast everywhere. And you can imagine if she dropped into her fear about, oh my God, this is the, if she dropped into Michelle Kwan protecting her reputation in that moment, she mm. would have up. But she says in her biography, she says, I just, I relied on my craftsmanship. I trained in this way. And I just did what I was trying to do. So um, so letting go of the grasping in that moment, the emotions in that moment, and just relying on craftsmanship, which was is driven by aspiration, right? Like I'm a writer, I'm a craftsman. I have an aspiration to write well, to write good books.
0: Yeah, well, actually, if you don't mind, double-clicking on that. Yeah, What is your aspiration as a writer? My aspiration is to learn
1: to convey deep truths and deep realities um, in a way that that mainstream folks can really get them. So, you know, I've, I've concentrated on Translating, for example, the Yoga Sutra. The Yoga Sutra is a 2,000 year old, very complex scripture. And I wrote a book called The Wisdom of Yoga, which really, I think, if I do say so myself, very well um, explained it in, in almost fictional, fa- in almost the f- fashion of a novel to, to a mainstream audience. Um, that's, what, that's what fascinates me. And by the way, fascination is an important fascination is important because if something fascinates you, you you have to follow that up. Mm. I'm fascinated. The first time I read a book that was in the genre that I write, it was by Mark Epstein called Thoughts Without a Thinker. And this was 30 years ago. It was a great bestseller. But. CK, it was so brilliantly done. It was so beautifully written. It was so sublimely put together. And I saw that and I said, I want that. I I think I can do that. Mm. Why I thought that, I don't know. There was no indication. I think I can do that. I saw myself in that. This is called projective identification. I saw myself there. And that became my aspiration. And so I plotted away at it, right? My first book took four years. Um, how I had the cojones to even think I could write a successful book, I don't know. I don't know, where did these things come from? Way deep inside. It did, it, it was a bestseller and still is 20 years later. And, and ever since then, I've been taking on these more and more complex assignments, Dharma assignments um, to write Books. The last book also took four years. The great, the hard um, and difficult times, and um, it kicked my butt, man. Oh my god, that book was put me through a lot, um, and and yet I knew I was I knew I was doing my dharma. I was I, I had certitude about that. I was bringing unified action. I was bringing everything I had to it, and now I'm letting go of it. Okay, and now I have a couple more books up here, beginning to cook. Like, what's what's calling me? And um,
0: yeah. There you go. Well, let me just say this: as a fan of your books, mm. that um, I really appreciate the intentionality behind every sentence, mm. the ways structure, thank you, and how you make it accessible. To mm-hmm. this very esoteric topic, mm-hmm. dharma, and also how you humanize these, you know, extraordinary human beings. Yeah, you know, because when we think about, oh, these are great people; they never have self doubts. Right. They never uh, <laughs> have downtimes. They're always walking on clouds wherever mm-hmm. they go. But that's your books. Specifically, your book, The Great Works of Our Life, really humanizes these extraordinary people. Like, oh, so they, too, are human, just like me.
1: That's so, I'm so glad to hear that, because that, that was my intention. Like, mm-hmm. Let's get under the hood of these lives. What, what, how does this really work? Because keep in mind, most of the people in that book, they weren't famous during their lifetime. Thoreau wasn't famous. I think 800 of his 2000, uh, his first book, I think had a print run of 2000, but in his lifetime, he never sold more than 800, which is not a lot of books, by the way, of of Walden, Walden, his great masterpiece. Now everybody reads it in college, everybody, right? All over the world. Um, Most of these people weren't famous in their lifetimes. And it's only in retrospect that we understand the power of living a life according to those four precepts discern your dharma, do it full out, let go of the fruit, turn it over to God. Um, so, um,
0: yeah, so on that note, you are on this path, you're making a difference in your readers' lives in ways that you will never know. That's right. Uh, what Okay so as a writer you could aim to just plant seeds and then whatever happens with the fruits hey mm-hmm. that's outside of your control
2: mm-hmm.
0: or yeah, as a writer you can attempt to give them actionable items to give mm-hmm. them you know transformation behavior shifts mm-hmm. you know trauma release like that's a little bit further down the line right. so what do you aim to do when you write so
1: you know, Emerson said to Thoreau, every sentence should be its own evidence. And that's a packed statement. But what it means, I guess, obviously, is every sentence should be so full of its own power that it doesn't have to refer to somebody else's power. So what I strive for as a writer is to is to write a book that itself has the power to transform the, the mm. words. This is what fascinates me. The power of words, when you read, like when we all have books that transform us and they're not the same books. Um, when, I, when I read Mark Epstein's book, I was my life was transformed by, and, and I also appreciated the genius and the beauty of his prose and the, the refinement of his uh presentation and it's an art form so all art forms have their own intrinsic fulfillment and when you hit it when you when you nail it you know it right and every now and then not all the time not even sometimes often i nail it and it's so it's so fulfilling so words are really my metier
0: in that sense. Mm. So, speaking of that, the medium of influence is now shifted, yeah, going from words. Well, actually, all the way back then, just oral traditions to now, you know, short form sound bites, social media. Can you speak yeah. a little bit more about how you have to change uh, as a teacher yeah. to uh, adapt to the modern times, to the no. modern taste? of our time
1: that's such a huge question (laughs) once again i'm in the middle take you wherever you wanted to go (laughs) i am so in the middle of this so when my you know i my new book is my sixth book right Mm -hmm. and all of my previous books sold extremely well the first book they the first three books are all i think over a hundred thousand each that's a lot of books um soul friends not quite as well, but this book all of a sudden it came out and it was like nobody bought it. Not nobody, but maybe we've sold a couple thousand copies. Um, and honestly, you know, I talk about I talk about a really nice game about letting go of grasping, but it does feel better when people buy your books after mm-hmm. you buy them. it, it mm-hmm. feels better, right? So I had to make a choice and so I consulted some people and, and I discovered that, oh, the world was changed while I was here writing books and people's concentration spans have diminished profoundly in 30 years. People need, as you said, sound bites, little videos, all of that stuff. So I had to make a choice, Steve, are you going to try to enter into that domain of social media and marketing. I've never marketed my books ever. Are you going to enter into that or are you just going to let it go? And that was, I was caught on the horns of that dilemma for a while until I decided, eh, I have some responsibility to a book like a child once I produce it. And so I thought, no, I'm going to hire. So I hired a brilliant woman and firm from North Carolina to do all my social media stuff. Well, I tell you, I never had a a Facebook page. I never had Instagram or any of that stuff, Twitter. Well, now I do (laughs) and now I do and I barely know how to get on any of it. Um, And um, it's an experiment, right? It's an experiment. So right now to, to your question, I'm videotaping a nine, session product that will go along with my new book, The Dharma Difficult Times, that we're gonna to try to push into yoga studios around the country, because I know that all of us around the country right now are saying, we live in such desperate times in so many ways, um, with global warming and with political separation and and insanity and with the rise of autocracy and on and on, we all have to have in the back of our mind the question of what is my duty? What is my duty in the face of everything falling apart? I know my duty is that little, that gem, the warp and woof strand of Indra's net, but how do I contribute my gifts to the common good right now i know that's in the back of everybody's minds and and so i'm creating this product that can go out with my book to help yogis in yoga studios and yoga teacher training programs think about these issues through the lens of the bhagavad gita which is the most influential scripture in in this regard having to do with action in the world and the common good um, so we'll see. It's an experiment, CK. I don't know.
0: Maybe well, next
1: year I'll be awful.
0: That stuff. Well, I'm a fan. I'm going to send my people to buy your course, to buy your books for sure. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but I do want to do a callback real quick because yeah. one, you know, what we talked about, the non dual perspective is everything is fine mm-hmm. and nothing to fix. And now you're also saying, like, hey, everything's falling apart. So at the surface level, mm. like, hey, wait a minute. Steven just said, this they seem to be conflicting. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about that. I
1: mean, this is a what you've just touched on is a is a classic debate within the contemplative world, and and let's face it, within all religious traditions, the the debate between the dual and the non-dual, and the and the non-dual position is, dude, everything is already okay. All you have to do is understand that, and then everything will be okay. The non-dual position is that no, no, no. Life is a system life as a spiritual being is a systematic program of purification of moral purification of spiritual purification. There's a lot to do get to work. Right? So these are the two and, and, you know, in back in the middle East, middle ages in India, all these great teachers had debates and, um, the debates were usually between the non-dualists and the dualists. And traditionally the non-dual people always win these debates because they use poetry and imagery and non-linear thinking and they they walk circles around the the dualists. The truth is uh, it's another case of the third way. They're both true, right? They're both true at the same time. And that's how I live really every day there is a um i have a systematic path of practice in you know i practice hatha yoga i practice meditation i practice chanting and um and there is also the daily surrender to it's all already okay i don't understand how but there is this profound center of well-being at the heart of me that connects with with all beings
0: or both. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll share mine. Maybe you can double-click on what yeah. my answer may be. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so I'm very much of a Taoist. Yeah. Everything is fine. It's a perspectiving that makes it good or not good. Absolutely. You know, yeah. Tall or short, whatever. Based on what? Right? What's the benchmark? What's the perspective? So 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 there's that. And um and and the way I think about My dharmic path is, hey, what do I learn? What have I learned that I could share to the younger versions of CK Mm -hmm. that may alleviate some suffering? Yeah. Ultimately, is there a path if they want to suffer? Fine, that's okay. But I've done my part to make a thing, an artifact, a book, a video, and it's up to them. I let that go. So that's the way I think about it. It is, everything is fine. Who yeah. are going to be people and the planet will be fine, quote, unquote, uh, long after humans are gone. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, what could I make? Because I want to make it as a way to in service of whoever that want to read or watch my things.
1: It's beautiful. Are you um, are you devoted to, to the data
0: chain? um devotion that devoted is a is, a, is a strong word, of right. a word but the concept of it
2: yeah
1: right yeah. um i am in completely entranced and, and charmed and motivated by the dao de ching I, I have to say uh, especially stephen mitchell's brilliant translation and um and i i i, I will tell you that temperamentally I'm a non-dualist. I always have been. But I also love the, the genius of the, no, wait, I said that wrong. I'm a dualist. I said that wrong. I'm a dualist. Really, that's how I grew up. That's, that's just my nature. But I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated and intrigued with, with non-dual wisdom at the same time.
0: You know what, now that you mention it, put it in those words, I would say I'm very much the same way because yeah. I'm a trained as a PhD um, biomedical engineer. I'm very yeah. much a solution oriented guy. What's the innovation? What's the solution to quote unquote solve this problem? Right. And through my spiritual practices, plant medicine, Vipassana, Tao Te Jing, all these scriptures, I learned about this subjective reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, how can I, it's, uh, how do I say this? I can get to a place of deep mind yeah. once I integrate all of my charges mm-hmm. of everything is fine, is the way it is. It's based on my perspective and so forth. Yeah. So I would say, uh, aspirationally, I like to be more in the non-dual world, but you know uh, the the training, <laughs> the programming that I've had so far is yeah. very much of a, a dualist. You know, how do we quote unquote solve problems?
1: You know, for me, the, the dualist approach, which has been the dominant approach in my life, has, has borne so much fruit. You know, I, I'm, I'm old. I'm 73. Um, and I've practiced since I was 25. And I can see across that trajectory the fruit. I, I'm in a time of what Jack Kornfield calls fruition. Right, he's. Mm. I think he's about the same age. Maybe he's a little younger than I am. But the fr- the fruition of of practice is is profound. So um, having that as my you know my my inspiration, the the contemplative traditions talk about. Um, verified faith verified faith is faith in something that you have a personal experience of having born fruit for you and so i have i have verified faith in 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 the dualist road
0: and actually on that note that's a phrase i'm not so familiar with do you mean that you have gone through some personal trials and tribulation to earn that wisdom is that what you mean by yeah. verify faith
1: yeah you're not so often in our culture, when we talk about faith, we talk about trusting in something you don't really know that much about.
0: Like blind right? faith.
1: Yeah, that's right. Like blind faith. Mm-hmm. But this is faith in something that you have tested and, and you know it to be true. Um, and back to that sense of knowing. Right. Um, so I have verified faith in these practices. It's 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 proven itself out in my life. And, um, uh, you know, I, I'm very aware of, I don't know if you, if you know the work of Teilhard de Chardin, the, the great French Jesuit paleontologist, but he was a, he was a Jesuit, he was a Christian, but also very involved in, in more in Eastern spirituality. And his view was, and he, he was a paleontologist, so he was a scientist like you, um, but his, his experience of the world was, it was filled with miracles all the time, little miracles, and I had that same experience. I haven't always had it. It's the fruit of practice for me. Um, when I practice regularly and stay tuned, little synchronicities, little awakenings, little aha moments, little little i don't know miracles <laughs> they they happen all the time it's just can you see them are you awake enough to see them and chardin was you should read some of his work at some point um brilliant at describing that you know i'm just oh. i'm aware of the time i have another call coming in and in, in got minutes <laughs> it
0: well, uh I, I so appreciate you uh, Stephen, thank you so much for your generosity, but just doing your work, yeah, walking your dharmic path. Um, you've been so, so, so generous, um, for those people that want to buy your course, where should they go?
1: Um, just go to stephencope.com. Uh, it's my website. And also if you'd like go to kripalu.org, K-R-I-P-A-L-U.org. Um, I'm, I'm all over that site as well, but you can. You can find my books and my courses uh, at my website and that'd be great. And, and also come and visit me at Kripalu. I teach there all the time. And we're up in a beautiful Jesuit monastery on the, um, in the Berkshire mountains of Western Massachusetts. It's it's quite gorgeous and stunning. Uh,
0: So So appreciate you, Stephen. My pleasure, CK. Lovely. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and inspire you on your journey towards purpose. Make sure to check out the show notes in the description for a full rundown of this episode with all the important links at noblewarrior.com forward slash episode number. And also make sure to share this with a friend and subscribe on Apple Podcasts as well. I really love hearing feedback from you. So share a review on Apple and let me know what part of this podcast episode resonated with you the most. Remember, Your higher self constantly points you towards your purpose. And now is the time to take action towards that.